You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. All right, today is Friday, September 25th, 2020, and I'm here today with Professor Richard Wagner. Uh, Dick, thanks for uh, coming on here and joining me for this. Well, thank you for the invitation. Um, you know, um, I wanted to uh, uh, sort of uh, draw attention to the work that you're doing in entangled political economy, but the longer development of that, because the issue of social economy has been a major part of what your career has been developing from from the beginning in many ways. So uh, if we could just start, you, you often point to Pareto's own shift from a technical economist into a sociologist as uh, a move away from a world which he viewed as too, you know, harmonious and, and uh, social solidarity to one more wrestling with the world of conflict and turbulence and yet somehow order. And maybe you could talk about Pareto and his influences on you and, and how that transformation in the social sciences can have an impact on young scholars today. In a way, it's not quite right to describe him as changing from an economist to a sociologist. He was always an economist, and that's apparent even in his big mind and society book. But he changed the way that he approached it, approached economics. And he did that because he was absolutely convinced that economic theory offered a wonderful analysis and description of the mutual benefits spread throughout society of societies organized on the basis of, of free markets. And that left Pareto wondering, well, if free markets are such a wonderful device for organizing societies, why is there such opposition to it? And so, he either had to conclude that, well, I'm wrong about that, and markets aren't so beneficial. He didn't do that. And uh, so he said, well, I have to figure out some way of making it intelligible to me in the first place why it is that the markets aren't more popular. And that led him into what he called sociology. Now, Prado was at his core, he thought, theories had to be equilibrium theories. That was sort of the way all things were thought of at that time, late 19th, early 20th century. And so he distinguished between economic equilibrium. It was basically, in his view, was kind of fifth of all raising an equilibrium pattern. And then he had this concept of social equilibrium, which entailed a, a process of continual change that resulted from people campaigning for political acclaim and political office. And so Prado then developed the two concepts of 
on the one hand, logical action, and on the other hand, non-logical action. And logical action pertained to markets and reflected the principle that people in making market choices, whether as producers or as consumers, were were undertaking experiments of a form and paying a price to do that and reaping whatever value came out of it. And so he thought, well, that's kind of like a scientific experiment. You, you, uh, you're engaging in a, in a process of testing. You look at the results. That's a pretty logical-like process. A business wants to develop a new product or open a new branch somewhere. It's going to do that with its own money. It's going to take some care in, in making that choice because it's going to bear the value consequences for good or for bad. And then Prado said, but when you get, there are two big domains of action where this isn't true. And he referred to those as politics and religion. And there, uh, you recognize that the reverse really held. That is to say, you knew what you wanted to start with. Uh, there was no process that was going to reveal what you wanted to do, unlike a market process providing information about which might be a better location, where rather in politics, you wanted to win the election, you wanted to hold office because uh, well, the, the acquisition of the power is far better than the fail to, act, to, to get the power. Yeah. And so then the problem becomes, okay, I want power. I have to get more votes than my competition. So how do I do that? And if you work that through, you'll see all kinds of things. Like yeah, yeah. But it's, it's all, there's calculation everywhere. But right. uh, you know, if you go later on to Eleanor Ostrom, and she always talked about these uh, action arenas and their different action arenas. And uh, what Trado was talking about really uh, is similar to what Eleanor Ostrom had in terms of arenas of action as, as being the things you have to look at. And um, there's also something that you wrote this book with Paul Alajica on the Bloomington Research Program. You had interviews in the back of the book with uh, Vincent and Eleanor. And in the inter interview with Eleanor, somewhere it came up that she distinguished between most social scientists try to stand apart from their subject matter right. and pronounce about it, where she described the Bloomington program as trying to penetrate into uh, this and uh, I think Pareto was kind of getting at that a bit, and I certainly have too, of trying to theorize from the point of view that you ought to be able to take your, you ought to be able to put yourself inside of your theoretical constructions and see what life feels like. 
And if your theoretical construction doesn't allow you to get a sense of recognizing the world that you experience, it's not a very good theoretical construction. Yeah. And uh, so that's something that's come on me gradually, probably over the last 20, 25 years or so. And uh, has led me to uh, remake uh, things I do and things that seem important to me quite considerably. Yeah. I think that's interesting that you that you just made that point because um, uh, this isn't uh, this is stimulated by what you just said. But if you think about Buchanan, in what should economists do? When you're reading that, you can actually see not only the the way that you envision yourself theorizing as an economist, but also yourself as a participant within that discussion. So, for example. At the end of that essay, he talks about, again, a mosquito abatement issue. And you could imagine yourself being one of the citizens in that society that's near the swamp or away from the swamp and how that all matters. But when you get to limits of liberty uh, and Buchanan's talking about the social contract, it's a contract that has mythical beings in it, as opposed to a contract that has real, real beings in it. As someone that's so close to Buchanan, um, have you, I mean, I know that you've written on, on this, but does that sound right to you? What I just said, that there's this, uh, say change in the way that he sees them as the same, but they seem to be changed. No, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And that's something I've thought about quite a bit. I, you know, I certainly have a lot of appreciation and respect for Buchanan and his work after all. And, at the same time, there are also some places where I diverge quite a bit uh, from them, and appreciably so. And I, I don't know if I ever put it into print. I mentioned it in class from a few people. I've talked to some people about it, that uh, I find Buchanan's work more interesting from the 1960s in his public finance kind of work. Uh, than I did in his 19, well, from 1975 was his Limits of Liberty. Yeah. And to his constitutional work, which struck me as much more constructivism, standing yeah. apart from the society and pronouncing it as against trying to act, theorize from the orientation of being a participant among other people. Uh, yeah was in some process and trying to engage in some kind of act of, in the first place, diagnosis of whatever it is that's causing the troubles we're experiencing. And uh, so uh, anyway, no, I think there is that uh, diversion. That's something he and I talked about several times later in his career. And you know, he said that he, Always liked those earlier works of his a lot, but he had, he said, a hard time getting them published. But yeah, he had a good publication record yeah. even in those early yeah. uh, days. Uh, but still, I mean, he, he also recognized that, you know, and it's true that we're all wrapped up inside of a profession, uh, although it's not a big, nice, tightly tied unity. But it's it's a conglomerate, 
but it's still a profession that, that people have their very expectations and standards. And you have to work your way around inside of that uh, profession. Yeah, uh, and yeah. so you know, that's going to impose constraints on you. You just can't formulate things just because they please you, because you also have to uh, please others by the cogency of your arguments. And so right. I guess I was struck them. by your I was struck a little bit by your comment, because um, I really always like this essay of yours, which is comparing and contrasting Tullock's social dilemma and Buchanan's Limits of Liberty. Oh, yeah. But I think I, I appreciate it even more now uh, than I did when I first read it um, um, because of this issue of putting yourself in the in the model. Um, and uh, anyway, we I, I don't want to belabor that because that takes us away from this. But I, I think it's a very important point. Um, I was going to ask you about the uh, one of my favorite stories uh, in economic folklore, but maybe you've already addressed some of it, but it's a story about Schmoller and Pareto interacting with each other. But I think maybe you might have addressed it already in your first response, because you said Pareto was always an economist uh, across the board, but he's dealing with an economic theory that's in this um, uh, or action arena. So in some sense, he's borrowing what Schmoller's criticisms are, but then not taking the full criticism, but then showing the power of economic theory within specific historical uh, institutional. How do you see this relationship between grand theory and the social specific context? This distinction, that's one of Frank Knight's very big themes, was that economic theory by itself is purely formal. There's a form to the theory, but then there's a substance to what the, to what the theory pertains. And we live in substance. We're substantive creatures, but we also form visions, models, theories. And there's a form. So there is a form of a maximizing um, activity. But there's also the question, well, what do you put into that maximizing? What are you about? And this is where this distinction between praxeology and timology comes into play. And recently, especially, I've been increasingly intrigued by the importance of timology as fitting above, so to speak, of praxeology, because we all, I think all creatures were, were able to fend well for ourselves within our situations, within our action arenas. But the really important kinds of questions are what kinds of action arenas do we choose to participate in? And then when you get into things like comparative systems is one of your big interests, then you know, how, how do you portray like liberalism and communism or socialism in, in that respect? And I like to perform the mental experiment. Well, suppose you just, assume that you have equal material standards of living under both socialism and liberalism. Mm -hmm. Then if you're equally well-clothed, well-fed, well-housed, and so forth, does it sure matter to you? And I would say 
that's answering a praxeological question, perhaps, or a materialist question. But there's more to it than that, which I think is the realm that gets you into the realm of timeology, which is, is it your life that you're leading? Yeah. You're choosing how to conduct yourself, or are you drafted into someone else's army? And where in the communism, socialism, you're a draftee into someone else's army. Now, maybe it happens by assumption that uh, you're just as well fed and well housed, right. but you're not leading your life. And that's, I think, I have increasingly come to think the big virtue of liberalism isn't in the materialist domain, but is actually in this uh, timological kind of domain that it, it frees people responsibility for your life, the ability to say you've done something or not uh, is something that is really accentuated within a liberal kind of regime and not a collectivist type of regime. Yeah, I, I, um, it's funny that you uh, mentioned that because I'm just, I'm just watching a, a Netflix series uh, in the COVID-induced, uh, you know, uh, uh, isolation here. Uh, it's I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, but if you have a Soviet interest, it's a it's a Russian uh, miniseries on Trotsky, um, and it's a uh, what they do is they do a bunch of flashbacks from right before he gets murdered, back to like the revolution and before the revolution, and everything like that. And one of and one of the things they keep on talking about is how the revolution consumes its own children, and uh, it shows the the inhumanity that Trotsky reintroduces after they've abolished it in some sense. So, for example, the death penalty. The episode I watched yesterday was just the reinstituting of the death penalty, which one of the first things the Bolsheviks wanted to get rid of, right, because of the oppressiveness of the state. But then. When they're ruling, they need to like squash their enemies, so they reintroduce the the death penalty, and they do all the things. And it's it's a there's something about the communist system that's different from just the fact that they don't deliver deliver the chickens to the comrades' mouths, right? <laughs> uh, and and it's something deeper about that practice. Um, but I want to I want to ask you a question about your your work in in fiscal. Uh, public finance and fiscal policy, because you mentioned that about Buchanan, and that is your disciplinary field background was in that, and you made a lot of contributions to what could be called fiscal sociology, and it's also the case that in your new book in macroeconomics, uh, you also talk about basically, uh, you know, having a macroeconomics of a world of turbulence, uh, and so you're trying to introduce these sociological ideas into public finance and into macroeconomics. And I was wondering if you could talk about the interrelationship you see in those, those two areas. Well, certainly this, this interrelationship is something, going back to something we said a little bit earlier, is something that's been increasingly gnawing at me over the last 20, 25 years or so. Uh, and it's the realization that, well, actually goes back to graduate school. I got out of graduate school really uh, in 1966 and thought that 
the economics theory I read in the classical period was more interesting than the economic theory <laughs> of the 20th century. Right. And uh, 20th century economics, as I encountered in 1966, seemed to be kind of formalistic, uh, but not interesting. And Adam Smith was interesting. Right. And that I came actually to realize that if you take the path, what, what you call the mainline path of economics, well, the main, excuse me, yeah, your yeah. terms sometimes can, yeah, yeah. the mainstream, the bad path is the yeah, mainstream yeah. path. If you take the mainstream path of economic theory, what you find around the time, starting with Balron and his statement of general equilibrium, is if you have a and work with the presumption that an entire society exists in a state of equilibrium, so your observations pertain to a state of equilibrium, then the presence of other people, society, has no work to do. So you can, because everybody's actions, they're all mutually consistent. Uh, the price system renders all actions mutually consistent and no excess demands or any of this sort of thing. And so you're thereby warranted to theorize, not, not to try to theorize about this complex object called a society, but you can theorize about a simple object called an individual, a representative individual, because you can get then from a representative individual to a society simply by multiplying by the number of people. And so what that means is the path from the individual to the society is a simple linear path yeah. of multiplication. Where, and that was, I think, the main line, main sphere, uh, yeah. mainstream path of economic theory uh, was the elimination of society. And so when you talked about society, you were just simply pronouncing individual optimization in a loud voice. And I think there's much more to that. You look back at Adam Smith, there's been a, over the 20th century, there was a big change in Adam Smith interpretation where for a long time, he was interpreted as, as just a, uh, a, a fan of, of uh, selfishness and so forth. Right. And then basically in the 20th century began we realized that he was really a, a theorist of social society and social processes. And so I as I came increasingly reflect upon that, I thought, well, yeah, that's we are economics should be in the position of being the pivotal point of departure for a theory of society, just as Adam Smith had envisioned. And so you know, my interest then, since I came at that from a, originally from a public finance point of view, I, you know, public finance at that time was all about welfare economics, right. social optimization and so forth. I decided that I had to figure out, come to terms with some way of trying to set forth an alternative uh, 
approach to all these things. And um, so that's where that all. Yeah, I think that that statement that you made, Dick, is profound. The issue about the the non non uh, non linearity, I think, of the move from the individual to the society that it's a non-scalar, right? It's something totally different. It, it becomes a different beast. Um, and I guess I, I guess in my next question, I wanted to ask you about with that, which has to do with um, you in the tools and techniques that you've developed in your work in fiscal sociology and uh, and in particular in your book, The Peculiar uh, Business of uh, Politics is a Peculiar Business, you rely a lot on network analysis, um, and uh, at least to, to, to illustrate the points that you're trying to make, and and uh, some of the agent-based modeling ideas that you've looked at as well. And so, as you look at the the various arrows in your quiver, right? Because again, like Pareto, you're an economist all the way through in all of these ideas. You never lose that that logic of economic theory, but yet you're throwing it into these different environments and you've, you've, you've been very experimental with different tools and techniques to try to capture this, this thing called society or social interactions. As you reflect back, can you talk a little bit about costs and benefits of the different tools? Like, you know, what, what do some tools give us and other tools don't give us and what are the costs of adopting these new tools and whatnot? No, that's an excellent question. One of the things I continually, each each class I teach and have for quite a number of years, try to, one of the things I try to get across is recognition that our theoretical categories and concepts are not simple helping aids to develop our thinking, but rather, they yes, they do that. But they also channel our thought, almost force us to see some things while preventing us from seeing other things. And so as a thinker, I think one thing you have to do uh, at the start is ask, well, what are the topics that your interest centers on? And what are the kinds of theoretical techniques or tools that are there and do these help propel your thought forward or might they create the illusion of progress? Like, you know, if the basic model you have is everything has to fit into a constrained maximization framework, uh, you lose sight of any of the processes by which people come to make early choices in their lives and how they're gonna even conduct their lives. Uh, and yet it's those kinds of preliminary choices that exert huge influences over the future conduct of life. Or if you have a model centered on systemic equilibrium, well, systemic equilibrium models are all told in the passive voice. Stuff just happens. And then change is just an exogenous shock that also just happens. Yeah. But if you want to tell stories in the active voice, then if you work backwards and say, well, what do I have to do to tell a story 
in the active voice, well, one thing you can't do is take that uh, Stigler-Becker move and say everyone is endowed with identical invariant utility functions because there has to be room for an alternative Frank Knight-like view that uh, one of the features of uh, human nature that manifests in varying degrees among people is this ability to wonder about what you're going to do, what kind of life you're going to construct, and, and this kind of thing. And so here again, I think it's important to think about what you're trying to accomplish with your thinking and to be aware that some models can, if we, some models might be easy to work with, but won't uh, allow us to uh, really get into what we want to get into. Yeah. Whereas if we get into what we want to get into, we might find ourselves uh, uh, dealing with a very messy yeah. uh, scheme. I use the analogy the, just this week in teaching I don't know if I got it from you, but it's it it, it might I might very well have, but it's uh, it's making this point. I described our theories as um, as flashlights, and we're staring into the dark. And when we stare the flashlight on one area, it illuminates that, but it necessarily makes the other area darker. And so maybe what we want is a floodlight. But we, but but you know, we we still are going to have a restricted set where we're not going to be able to go. And to give you an a, example, yesterday I attended one of the things I've been doing during this whole COVID thing is I I go to these webinars that are at Princeton. They're uh, they've been pretty good, and they have a lot of uh, you know the most famous people. So yesterday was uh, Tarol uh, giving a talk, and uh, it moved off of COVID and political economy of COVID. And, and yesterday, what it talked about was a very fascinating thing, which is that has social media meant that the line between our private life and our public life has blurred. So now when we make choices, we're not making choices of uh, within the space of our private sphere, but always in the public sphere. So as a result, what does that do to the way that we think about our utility functions? Now, that's kind of an interesting question. The way he went about doing it was to try to translate it into standard utility maximization framework. And, you know, 20 minutes into the talk, my eyes were glazing over and I was struggling to stay awake uh, because it was just a simple exercise. It's like I was I was uh, sent back in time to Mike Alexiev's class and, and dealing with, you know, constrained maximization problems and an equilibrium outcome, because that's what he was trying to, 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 you know, that was the standard by which he did it. So he had a really big question, but then his techniques forced him to make the question, uh, as you would put it, uh, you know, a single exit, you know, uh, in that uh, question, rather than dealing with the complexity of our social relations and all these things like that. And so I think we have real strong cost benefit calculations that we each have to make in choosing our various tools and the research questions that we engage in. And I, I appreciate that you've been so flexible. Uh, that's, uh, I, I, I mean that in a very, uh, in, the, in the right sense, flexible in borrowing, you know, tools and techniques over the years that are driven by the questions you want to ask more than by fidelity to a technique. 
Um, but that has costs and benefits itself too, right? Oh, yes. We all have to live with the choices we make. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. And uh, which is, again, is a timological <laughs> kind of matter. And uh, I think actually this question raised by Tyrone's lecture yesterday is actually a, a fascinating one because it's something I've often um, ruminated a bit about uh, is what happens to the concept of private property with the growth of social media and so forth, where to say that what private property really means when you get down to it is that other people that inhabit the society are willing to forbear from interfering in certain domains of your life. And so it's, it's, that's your domain for you to deal with as you choose. Other people, no, they're not involved. But that's not something of just datum. It's right. at some point. But uh, this depends upon the content, I would say, of the moral imaginations of the people who inhabit that society. And uh, whether those moral imaginations then are just somehow autonomous or whether they themselves are generated through technologies and, and, and so forth, uh, that's a hugely perplexing question, I think, is, is one of those questions I always have on the list of things to think about, but never uh, you know, make that much progress on it yet. But yeah. that reminds me of something you've often heard you say that you got from Kenneth Boulding once who remarked that the world is a terrible muddle. <laughs> it would be a shame if we figured it out. Yeah, I'm going to, I was going to actually bring this up to you, which is, you know, we're, we're separated by about 20 years of graduate education. Mm -hmm. but, our, but our graduate educations were benefited tremendously from this, in many ways, the same cast of characters. So Buchanan and Tulloch, but um, I had Bolding and, and, and others in there. You had Nutter and Coase and, and, and others in there. But one of the things that I think is common among the people that we were educated by was that the questions were what fascinated. And then you look for techniques to help answer a question rather than that the only question you should ask are driven by the techniques. So when I was left George Mason as a grad and, and joined the faculty at NYU, one of the things that struck me in going to the micro seminar and other places, even Andy Schotter, who had written a very fascinating book in the early 80s on uh, an economic theory of institutions, um, the questions were constrained by the techniques. So the technique was the priority. And then the question had to fit to the technique, not like Tulloch, who just freely roamed, you know, like all over the place, but then like tried to put, bring the analytical discipline to his questions. Do you see it that way as well? I mean, in terms of the difference between those, I mean, you've been in different environments in your career as well, or Irvine and Tulane and other places, some of these places where you would have been, you know, one of the only people that would have thought along the lines that you think about. And, and, and what is your experience in that? Oh, it's absolutely the same as yours. I, when I got out of graduate school, I was really, really perplexed about how most people seem to 
feel that they learn some techniques and they're just whatever they are, are going to do is going to involve using those techniques rather than thinking that the techniques are suitable. And if they're not, you have to get busy and try to find something that might be. And yeah. uh, uh, that again was one of the messages of Pareto as he realized that he couldn't explain why markets weren't so popular within the context of economic theory. So he had to go uh, in a different direction to do that. And uh, you know, I think it's one of the things that I, I find attractive about modern developments in complexity theory, agent-based modeling, these things, is that they are ways of thinking systematically, but allow you to entertain such ideas. For instance, one thing I, I believe in when we talk about relation between the individual and society is that really, I think, at least as I see it, as a theorist, you have to assume that individuals do the best they can for themselves, praxeologically speaking. And so there's nothing at all wrong with a model of utility maximization applied in specific context to choices that people must act on. But that doesn't mean you go from that presumption to a model of systemic general equilibrium. Because it means each person is acting on, you know, in order for us to act, to take an act today to commit to actions in the future, we have to have in our head some presumption of how this is going to play out for us. Knowing we may be wrong a bit, maybe wrong a lot, yeah. but we, in order to act, we have to have in our minds some kind of uh, cause and effect of belief. Now, other people are doing the same thing, and it's very plausible that those beliefs aren't going to be totally congruent. I mean, if you ask, what things do we, broad properties do we find about societies, economic societies and so forth? And I, I think there are basically two things. Right. One is that uh, societies basically work. Uh, uh, people get housed, fed, born, buried, all these things. Even in war times, these things happen. Uh, but the other, also big fact of social living together is antagonism, conflict, uh, clashing among clans, among personalities, these two. And if you're gonna talk about how to theorize about society as against imagined equilibrium states, then you have to develop a scheme of thought that's going to allow uh, for widespread success in commercial activities along with envy, jealousy, antagonism. Um, uh, nobody, for instance, invests in a new business intending to go bankrupt. Yeah. Now, uh, no one is going to then turn around and say, gee, I screwed this up. Uh, right. They're going to say, someone did me in, did me badly. Right. So then you had a market for legal services. You have a market for legislation. Because 
what does legislation do? But it covers over that uh, you did something screwily, badly. And so you know, I, th I think you can generate the whole wide world out of principles of economizing action, praxeologically speaking, but you have to put it in that kind of context where it's like I, I like to describe and contrast a parade with a big crowd of spectators leaving a stadium because the stadium crowd is likewise orderly. People all get to their destinations, but it's not an order that anyone can plan. And it's, it's an emergent order. And that's the type of order that societies are. And what we have, what economists mostly do is when they see something they think is unruly, they don't try to do the Ellen Rostrom kind of move right. of trying to get inside of it and see how it actually hangs together, but rather they try to stand above Mount Olympus there yeah. and saying, well, let's get this crowd shaped up. And yeah. so uh, <laughs> that means we have an into a parade. Yeah, we have an imperfectly competitive world. Let's make it perfect. Yeah. And uh, that's just a bizarre backwards way of thinking. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, it is amazing because all the great literature has the conflicts and the cooperation and all of that stuff in there. And all the great stories from the Bible, right? I mean, uh, the trying to capture the nature of what you know, man's struggle with each other and with nature is one of, of, of gnashing and gnawing successes and step backwards and all of that. And if we had a, I think that's what Bolding was trying to get at when he said the real world is a muddle and it would be a shame if we were completely clear about it. But um, he also used to say that, um, uh, kidding around, he would say that the problem with uh, Leon Valras is that he had no idea about the modern super, uh, you know, super supermarket, you know, like, right. So his notion of homogenous commodities and all that kind of stuff like that had no idea of, you know, 15 choices of cereal that you go and look at and all of these things. But um, so it, along these lines, I mean, we're kind of coming to the same theme again, but, you know, you were an early mover among economists, especially economists of our stripe, meaning, you know, liberal political economists or whatever, to be very open to economic sociology. And you taught uh, a course using the handbook of economic sociology um, during a period of time when uh, we had a very productive research class. You know, that was the period of time that includes, you know, Chris Coyne and Pete Leeson and Virgil Storr and Ed Stringham and Ben Powell and Ryan Opria, all of who have gone on to have very good successful research careers. And when you were teaching it, you were using the handbook of economic sociology. And uh, did that have any lasting impressions on you and your experience or, or, or whatnot? Oh, it did. Um, and, you know, there on economic sociology, I, I taught sociology for my first two years at Irvine. I got out of Virginia in 66 and taught at Irvine wow. for two years before going to Tulane. And there were no departments at Irvine at the time. It was, it was a brand new university that year. And the dean there, Jim March from Carnegie Mellon, who's Sire and March fame and so forth, 
Um, he wanted to have just a general social science program. And one of the, Irvine was on a quarter system. And so one of the things in social sciences, there were six uh, disciplines in the social science program. And each quarter, two of them were put together and a year long introduction was taught. And so one quarter, I didn't teach your own discipline. So I didn't teach in the economics and political science quarter, yeah. but I taught in the sociology and anthropology quarter. And I also taught in the geography and psychology quarter. Oh, wow. And so I, uh, I loved doing all of that, but I also realized that son of a gun, if I spent all my time reading sociology, anthropology, and geography and psychology, <laughs> I was never going to get anything published. And so I, I left and went to Tulane. Right. But uh, ever since then, I've often thought, gee whiz, it would really, I would really love to be in a university program of kindred spirits who yeah. must like to let, like Gordon Tullock's, who just like to let their ideas lead uh, yeah. and then figure out how to think about them in various ways rather than the reverse. Oh, I can understand uh, why the reverse is, is dominant within bureaucratic professional association types of environments. But anyway, so I've always had this interest in sociology. And so I started teaching uh, that institutional economics uh, course back around 2000 or so, I guess it probably was. And I used the Handbook of Economic Sociology. And you know, that's a big, thick book. Uh, I think it's in a new edition now, but it was a big, uh, thick book. And I, I kind of have the sense that the relationship between economics and sociology, there isn't one universal portrayal of that relationship, but rather it depends on your own mentality. That is, if you have the idea that economics, the whole world of, of social organization is a tale told by constrained optimization and it's sufficient, then sociology is gonna be alien. But then if you look at most sociology these days, a century ago, it was different. Well, a century ago, you had some sociologists of spontaneous order. Right. People like George Zimmel, um, Norbert Elias. These were sociologists, Max Weber, these were all sociologists who were conversant with ideas of invisible hands, spontaneous orders, and so forth. And in that respect, I think the relation between sociology and economics is kind of like the two parabolas, x squared minus x squared in the neighborhood. But if you then allow the social arrangements and conventions and standards to disappear, uh, then you're in the, uh, the Gustavus known as disputandum world. But then if you go the modern, more sociological approach and saying that, well, people don't have choices, really. Um, they're whipped around by um, habits, 
conventions, places in an organization and all this, uh, then you get this kind of social determinism as if we're kind of imprisoned. Uh, and, you know, I, I think what I, you know, I think there's a bit of both in there. I mean, that's, right. that's my whole approach to kind of macro theory. I, that's part of why I wrote that, published that macro book a few months ago is because I wanted to, one of my fundamental beliefs about what I tell uh, students in most classes anyway is certainly when I taught macro, I would always tell students, you know, I think macroeconomics is the most important part of economics because it deals with the whole systemic properties of systems and social order. But I also think it's the most totally screwed up part of economics. <laughs> and uh, so I, when I uh, was teaching 881, started a few years ago, I started to say, well, I gotta, I gotta do something about this and uh, write something up on that. So that's when I devoted that 881 for three or four years to developing the argument in this book. And because I, I think it's the system level uh, and how we think about that, that is really uh, what's most important for us to get straight and the individual level will take care of itself almost. Right. Uh, where uh, modern macro theory is really nothing but excuses for planning and governmental control and so forth because uh, the only place there's room for action is insertion of power into <laughs> a system of equations. It's just bizarre. Well, it's a great book, Dick, and and I really appreciate uh, getting my copy and 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 looking through it and seeing. Uh, I mean, it's a you're an exemplar to to all of us about how to be a a productive and and vibrant mind uh, throughout your entire career. Um, anyway, I appreciate. I mean, there's so many. Uh, we could have uh, conversations for uh, an entire year based on certain. Uh, gems that you've done, uh, you know, here that I, uh, that I didn't know about before. Um, this point about you teaching sociology, I think, at Irvine is, uh, is amazing. Um, but I wanted to, to wrap up with one last question, which is just to give you a chance. Um, you recently just gave an inaugural lecture to a new research group that was founded by some of your former students <coughs> and um, on the entangled political economy I believe that they're going to have a subset of that group is going to be meeting at the public choice uh, society meetings annually, putting together panels and whatnot. Um, what other avenues? Obviously, you gave that talk and it's full of promise and excitement for a, a ongoing research program for young scholars to jump on the bandwagon for. But what other things are you currently working on? related to that or independent of that, that, that have captured your imagination at the moment? If, if I didn't teach, I would never write anything because <laughs> I, I find it's really what inspires my thinking, both uh, uh, facing an audience to explain things and getting their various reactions and thoughts because in all my classes, I also have them, students do a lot of writing and reflecting. And I look upon uh, 
graduate education is, is very much not a matter of me as an expert informing students, right? But uh, students, you know, I happen to have more years behind me for sure. But uh, it's really a matter of me and the students. We're all I think of us as as all trying to uh, learn about something, and I always regard ask what's a successful semester, it would be that we each ought to be able to say, we ended the semester feeling better informed about a subject matter than we began the semester. That goes for me as well as for all of them. And so each, I organize my research program, follows my teaching program. Although I do a lot of things with like, co-authoring pieces with, with students and little things here and there, but it's by and large always in two book projects. And so, you know, I have in the public choice class, um, just in the beginning stages of putting together another book that takes, is concerned with uh, democratic governance and the, under what conditions it could really be institutionally reasonable to talk about democracy as a system of self-governance as against being just formal. Yeah. And so with this form versus substance, and something that Frank Knight always liked to emphasize there was that democracy as a system of governance by discussion as against, and so he made a big distinction between discussion and debate. Yeah. And where with discussion, there's no audience. There are participants and they're trying to learn from one another. And the idea there is that the process is gonna be educational. Whereas with debate, there's no learning going on. Each side holds to a pretense of knowledge and the task is to acquire approval from an audience who's going to make a popularity vote. And so that's a... Uh, line of thought. And the other one in the market process course, I just finished the uh, macro book this last year. And I'm going to, starting in, in January, I'm going to, in a way, uh, approach this more from a sociological, I shouldn't say sociological, social theoretic yeah. Uh, point of view, uh, with particular emphasis upon the idea that uh, societies, well, the in the late 18th into the 19th century, uh, there was a European kind of discussion about what was called the social question, and that question referred to. Uh, problems that were attributed to the movement of people from towns and villages into cities and the dislocations that that created. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I've been intrigued by realization that the world has become ever shrunk more and more so. And that's almost an irresistible kind of of process going on. And I'm interested in exploring this social question 
kind of course has to do with with immigration and also has to do in, in, in our American context has to do with racial kinds of matters as well. One line of theory, the equilibrium theories postulates a set of axioms of supposed underlying harmony among people, which never exists. But I'm interested in fits my emergentist kind of theoretic uh, background. Yeah. And what is there about how to live well together in a very shrunken world that we live in, the kinds of rapid, almost instantaneous communications we have for right and for wrong. Right. A lot of error is transmitted as well as truth. Right. And uh, in a way, it's related to this question that you said in your Princeton lecture by Jean Tarot yeah. yesterday about how do we really take our bearings in this kind of greatly shrunken world? In a, in a substantive way, that's where you know, I find myself very attracted to the Ostrom research program in this way, because they were, sure, they were theorists, but they fundamentally wanted to live inside their theories. And that's where I, I think we really need to theorize rather than pretending we're outside of what we're thinking about. That's a great, I mean, this is a, it's interesting that you start with the transition in the 19th century problem of social problems associated with urbanization, because in a lot of ways, that's all from us living on top of each other, or as you've stressed from Sartre at other times, hell as other people. But now the reality is, is that we truly do have no escape in the sense that the world has shrunken. So we are all on top of each other. And how do we find the rules that allow us to live better together rather than at each other's throats. It's a, it's a fascinating project. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with that one. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.